want to take the opportunity to welcome all of our guests and visitors, all of our longtime attenders. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, if you're brand new here, I'd encourage you to fill out a brown card in the back. Uh, fill it out, put it into the basket over there, take a mug, and uh, enjoy your coffee in that mug, and give us some free advertisement while you're at it. I want to welcome all the kids. Let's give the kids a round of applause. Thank you for being here, kids, and I hope I don't bore you too much. My name is Ben Espinosa, and I serve as the pastor of Community Life here at Covenant Church. And this morning, we're going to be kicking off Advent in style. Obviously, you see all these glorious decorations, which are absolutely beautiful. And we're going to be kicking off our sermon series for Advent called Glory Revealed, where we pay attention to the ways that God has revealed His majesty and glory in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who haven't been here uh, through November— We went through a series called Glory Promised. We talked about how the Old Testament points to the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And just to recap, Jesus appears in the Old Testament in a few very important ways. Number one, he appears as the angel of the Lord or as a theophany. He wrestled with Jacob. He was there with Moses at the burning bush. He appears as types or typologies, those figures throughout the Old Testament, such as Abraham and Moses and David, who have some of the same qualities as the coming Messiah. And he appears in the over 300 or so prophecies about the Messiah. So Jesus just doesn't come onto the scene in the New Testament. He's been present all throughout the Old Testament in numerous ways. And this month, we're going to be celebrating this thing called Advent. And Advent really means that we wait expectantly with the children of Israel for the coming of the Messiah. But it also means that we expectantly wait for the second coming of the Messiah as well. So we're living in this in-between time where glory has been revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but has yet to be fully revealed. So before we get into this message, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we can come here and open your word. I pray that you'll open our hearts and minds and our eyes to the different things that you want us to learn this morning and help us to glorify and honor your name in all that we say and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you notice these banners, they use the word glory. Now, glory is a word that I haven't really defined this past month. And I think most of us in this room have an idea of what glory is. We have some sort of nebulous, abstract idea about what it means. But very few of us have some idea of how to define it. So in order to help us define what glory is, I'm going to ask some of the smartest people in the room, the scholarly, the intelligentsia, the children. Children, I want to ask you guys a question. So pay attention. What does glory mean? Anyone have an idea? Have an idea? What does glory mean? God loves you. That's good. That's perfect. I like it. Let's give a round of applause. That takes guts. Glory is one of those words that means a few different things throughout the Bible. In some cases, it means weight or mass or heaviness, as if someone's going to press their presence into you. In other cases, it means brightness, sort of like having someone's presence blind you in the eyes like a really powerful flashlight. In the ancient Greek world, glory meant having a 
people had a positive opinion about you. And more specifically, it usually referred to kings who would return from a glorious victory. They would have a glory about them. It's what people heard about you. They heard great stories of your majestic defeat of the enemy. Now, if you put all of these various definitions of glory together, you get something like this, like St. Augustine defined back in the 4th century. He defined glory as brilliant celebrity with praise. So keep that in mind because we're going to come back to it in a bit. Now, before we begin looking at our main text this morning, I want to point your attention to the very last chapter of the Old Testament. Now, keep in mind, all of these things that we're about to read were written 400 years before the time of Jesus Christ. Malachi chapter 4. And I'm going to read this passage from a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message because I think it adequately captures the spirit of the original language. So if you want to open up your copy of God's Word to Malachi chapter 4, I'd greatly appreciate it. It says this, Count on it. The day is coming, raging like a forest fire. All the arrogant people who do evil things will be burned up like a stove would, burned to a crisp. Nothing left but scorched earth and ash, a black day. But for you, sunrise, the sun of righteousness will dawn on those who honor my name, uh, healing radiating from its wings. You will be bursting with energy like colts frisky and frolicking. I like that. And you'll tromp on the wicked. There'll be nothing but ashes under your feet on that day. God of the angel armies says so. Remember and keep the revelation I gave through my servant Moses, the revelation I commanded at Horeb for all Israel, all the rules and procedures for right living. But also look ahead. I'm sending Elijah the prophet to clear the way for the big day of God, the decisive judgment day. He will convince parents to look after their children and children to look up to their parents. If they refuse, I'll come and put the land under a curse. So what's going on here? Malachi, this great prophet, is talking about the day of judgment, and it sounds like a most terrible day. The enemies of God will be dealt with in an appropriate way, while those who follow God will be blessed beyond measure. But the Old Testament also ends on a command and a prophecy. A command that the children of Israel would keep the law that God himself gave to Moses. And a prophecy that there will be one who will make a way for this big day that's coming. And in particular, it's referring to the forerunner of the Messiah, Elijah, who will go before the Messiah and preach the law and judgment. And we know that it was John the Baptist who fulfilled this role of Elijah, as we will see in the next few weeks. But these are the last words of the entire Old Testament. They're filled with the promise of a Messiah who will come and redeem the world and slay all of his enemies. But the children of Israel didn't hear any more words from God for over 400 years. Now imagine you're a Jew And you grew up hearing these words. And you know that this great day is coming when the Messiah will restore justice and establish his rule and reign on earth. And you're waiting. And you're waiting. And you're waiting. 
and you still don't hear a thing. You've heard that glory beyond glory has been promised, but glory hasn't been revealed yet. Kids, all the kids in the room, I want to imagine that your parents, I want you to imagine in your mind that your parents are going to go and get you your favorite pizza. And they said that they'd be back in five minutes, but instead they come back in 20 minutes. How would that make you feel? You guys can shout out loud. How, how, how would it make you feel if your parents didn't come back five minutes later? They came back 20 minutes later. What was that? You feel good because you don't like pizza. That's an honest answer, folks. I like it. Now imagine if your parents didn't come back for 40 days. Be pretty hungry, huh? Now imagine if your parents gave you that pizza or that they promised you this pizza and they didn't deliver on it for 400 years. That's how the children of Israel felt, okay? For 400 years, Greek culture has taken over everything, changing the way the Jews worshipped and lived their lives. And then the Romans have taken over your homeland and you're stuck in poverty. They tax you to death and barely have, you barely have any, any money to, to feed you or your family. I think if all those things happened to you, you would cling to this promise of the Messiah pretty tightly. And just at the perfect moment, not a moment too soon or a moment too late, God chose to fulfill the promise of his Messiah that he made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and all the way through the book of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets and finally in Malachi chapter 4. Please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 18. Let's read the story here. The birth of Jesus took place like this. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. Before they came to the marriage bed, Joseph discovered she was pregnant. It was by the Holy Spirit, but he didn't know that. Joseph, chagrined but noble, determined to take care of things quietly so Mary would not be disgraced. So here's what's going on, right? You automatically have these two characters that come into the story, Mary and Joseph. We're not told who they are, but we do know that they're a couple and that they're engaged to be married and that Mary is pregnant before they were married. And it was God, the Holy Spirit, who made her pregnant. But Joseph had no clue. That tells me that chances are Mary was probably in her second trimester as she began to show. Now, there's some, there's some pretty historical, important historical stuff going on here that helps us get a better picture of this entire story. Now, something else that changes the game here is when you see pictures of Mary and Joseph, they're usually older, like in their 20s or 30s or even 40s. They look like adults. But back then, men were looking to get married around the ages of 16 or 17. And girls were generally married off by the time that they were around 14. Imagine being engaged at that age. For us, it's strange, but back in those days, it was commonplace. So these are kids that we're dealing with here. Joseph's just a teenager, and so is Mary. Another important piece of all this is that back then, an engagement was super serious business. If you're engaged here in the U.S. in the 21st century, it's more of a promise that you're going to get married and spend the rest of your life with another person. 
But in those days, an engagement meant a very binding contract where the families of those who were to be married were financially invested in this marriage. And if a woman became pregnant before entering into the marriage covenant, the man could legally break off the engagement without any consequences. And the man had every right to publicly display his ex-fiancee's sin to the community, and she would most likely face the death penalty. Now, you see that in these couple verses here. Joseph's upset, and honestly, what dude wouldn't be? But his frustration is held back by his nobility. You can see he still loves Mary, and he doesn't think that this law is just, and he's looking to find a way out. So you have a pregnant 14-year-old, a concerned 17-year-old, and a whole lot of scandal going on, okay? Check out these next few verses. It says, while he was trying to figure a way out, he had a dream. So Joseph's trying to figure out exactly what to do with Mary's pregnancy. But from a legal perspective, he really doesn't have any options whatsoever. The only option he has is to run away and to escape the inevitable persecution. And Joseph goes to bed with a heavy head and a heavy heart, worried and anxious about his future. But instead of getting a good night's sleep, he has a dream instead. And here's what happens. Matthew writes this, God's angel spoke in the dream, Joseph, son of David, don't hesitate to get married. Mary's pregnancy is spirit-conceived. God's Holy Spirit has made her pregnant. She will bring a son to birth. And when she does, you, Joseph, will name him Jesus. God saves because he will save his people from their sins. This would bring the prophet's embryonic sermon to full term. Watch for this. A virgin will get pregnant and bear a son. They will name him Emmanuel, Hebrew for God with us. So there's a lot that's going on in this passage, but I want to point out to you that the angel addresses Joseph as the son of David. Now that's important because we know from the Old Testament that the Messiah would be the son of David, and by Joseph's adoptive fatherhood, Jesus has a right to call himself the son of David. So the angel unveils God's plan to Joseph. What a privilege that would be, wouldn't it? There's nothing special about Joseph, but God chooses to let him be a part of his plan. So the angel tells Joseph that Mary's pregnancy is from God and that when this baby is born, you're going to call him Jesus because he's going to save the world. Oh yeah, and this is actually fulfilling that prophecy that you found in the book of Isaiah that you read about as a kid. So you're going to marry that girl in order to fulfill God's plan. Now I want you to think, about the scariest nightmare that you've ever had. Now, times that by the 10th degree, okay? That's how scary Joseph's dream was, okay? A lot of times when you read the Christmas story, Joseph is this old, noble man who responds to God with humility and with grace. But remember, this is a 17-year-old that we're dealing with here. And God has chosen to use this probably pimply-faced teenager to accomplish his purposes, Let's check this out. It goes on to say, Joseph woke up. He did exactly what God's angel commanded him in the dream. He married Mary, but he did not consummate the marriage until she had the baby. He named the baby Jesus. 
I like to imagine that Joseph woke up scared straight because Jesus went, uh, Joseph went uh, to bed worried about what was going to happen to him and Mary. And he wakes up from having an encounter with an angel. And he knows exactly what he's going to do. But he's probably a little freaked out about it, okay? And I love how matter-of-fact the Bible is in this respect. It says he woke up, he married her, she had a baby, he named the baby Jesus. It's just pretty matter-of-fact, okay? So there's the, how the birth of the Messiah Jesus came about. But this is where the story gets interesting. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem village, Judah territory, this was during Herod's kingship, a band of scholars arrived in Jerusalem from the east. They asked around, where can we find and pay homage to the newborn king of the Jews? We observed a star in the eastern sky that signaled his birth. We're on a pilgrimage to worship him. So out of nowhere, Matthew mentions these scholars who want to worship the newborn Jesus. And we traditionally refer to these guys as the three wise men or the the three kings. Now what's interesting is that Matthew doesn't tell us their names or their origins, where they're from. All we know is that they're scholars. But these aren't just like university professors or anything. They're most likely astrologers. Okay, meaning they follow the stars and they try to determine significant events from what the stars are telling them. Now, chances are these scholars from the East would have heard rumors of a Messiah, of the Jews. And of course, since they believe in the power of the stars above all else, they want to come and see this newborn king of the Jews. Now, what's interesting is that the only indication that the Messiah had been born was a star in the sky. These scholars aren't good Jewish men. They're most likely just religion scholars, which we'll see in a bit. goes on to say that when word of their inquiry got to Herod, he was terrified. Now, Herod is the governor over all of Jerusalem, by the way. And not Herod alone, but most of Jerusalem as well. Herod lost no time. He gathered all the high priests and religion scholars in the city And asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? They told him, well, Bethlehem, Judah territory. The prophet Micah wrote it pretty plainly. It's you, Bethlehem, in Judah's land, no longer bringing up the rear. From you will come the leader who will shepherd rule my people, my Israel. Now, Herod, who's the the administrator, he's the governor of the province, is terrified because the king of the Jews is going to come and overthrow his government. Now, a couple facts about Herod. He was a great administrator. He did a pretty good job. Under Herod, Jerusalem flourished. He was a man of the people. He improved working conditions for the working class. He restored honor and majesty back to the temple, to Jewish religious life. But toward the end, he became a violent and corrupt man. He murdered those who disagreed with him. He started wars, and he continually shook his fist at Rome. Now, when it says that all of Jerusalem was terrified about the news of this Messiah, they weren't afraid of the Messiah. They weren't afraid of what he would do. This is referring to the fear of what Herod might do to the entire country if someone were to challenge his throne. 
So what does Herod do? He gathers together all of his cronies, all of his henchmen, all of his advisors and his minions to find all, found out all about this coming Messiah. And his advisors tell him that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem based on a prophecy in the book of Micah. So imagine you're Herod and you're reading a biblical prophecy. He has one of two choices. He can either live into the prophecy and worship the newborn king, or he could completely disregard it. Joseph faced the same challenge, didn't he? He could either listen to the angel who quoted scripture and marry Mary, or he could deny it. But Herod made his choice. It goes on to say that Herod then arranged a secret meeting with the scholars from the east, pretending to be as devout as they were, He got them to tell him exactly when the birth announcement star appeared. Then he told them the prophecy about Bethlehem and said, Go find this child. Leave no stone unturned. As soon as you find him, send word, and I'll join you at once in your worship. Herod doesn't want to worship the king. He wants to murder the king. Instructed by the king, the scholars set off. Then the star appeared again, the same star they had seen in the eastern skies. It led them on until it hovered over the place of the child. They could hardly contain themselves. They were in the right place. They had arrived at the right time. They entered the house and saw the child in the arms of Mary, his mother. Overcome, they kneeled and worshipped him. Then they opened their luggage and presented gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. That's a pretty fantastic scene right here. They're enthused. They're ecstatic. They found their Messiah. Now, chances are this entire journey probably took about two years. That's a long time to be searching for somebody. But this explains why they were so excited to see this newborn king. And I love how it says that they entered into the room and saw Jesus in the arms of his mother. Now imagine you're Mary, and you know your kid's pretty special. And these random guys show up in your house and start to worship your baby. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Yeah, thank you. And I love how it says they were overcome. I imagine these men with tears in their eyes, trembling and shaking falling on their faces and worshiping the newborn king. I can guarantee you that they felt his glory. They felt the heaviness of the Messiah. And they presented these luxurious gifts to their newborn king, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, some folks will try and uh, assign special meanings to these different gifts, but the bottom line is, is that these were just items of luxury. Gold was the standard currency of the day, and frankincense and myrrh were some of the most rarest spices in the entire world. And they were only brought in by travelers on very rare occasions. These were gifts fit for a king. Matthew goes on to finish the rest of the story. It says in verse 12, In a dream, they were warned not to report back to Herod. So the scholars worked out another route, left the territory without being seen, and returned to their own country. And after the scholars were gone, God's angel showed up again in Joseph's dream 
and commanded, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Stay until further notice. Herod is on the hunt for this child and wants to kill him. Joseph obeyed. He got up, took the child and his mother under the cover of darkness. They were out of town and well on their way by daylight. They lived in Egypt until Herod's death. This Egyptian exile fulfilled what Hosea had preached. I called my son out of Egypt. And many of us know the rest of the story. Herod orders the murder of all the infants under the age of two, fulfilling prophecy. And Mary and Joseph and Jesus return from their Egyptian exile after he dies. So there's Matthew's account of the birth of the Messiah. It's got drama. It's got intrigue. It's got scandal. It's got worship. I just want to make a few observations about this incredible story. Number one is that this glorious king, he comes as a baby. Have you ever really thought about this? Okay, God's Messiah, the one who will bring salvation for his people, who will restore this broken world back to God the Father, the one who will triumph over all the forces of darkness, comes as a baby. I've seen babies. I've held babies. Babies don't do those things, people. But I think the fact that the Messiah came as a baby says a few things about the character and nature of our God. It says that our God doesn't abide by our rules. It says that God uses the things that we consider weak to overthrow those who are strong. It says that our God chose to send His Messiah to experience all the things that we experience as humans so that he could sympathize with us and our weaknesses, like it says in the book of Hebrews. He probably cried. He was hungry. He's probably thirsty. He probably got cranky every now and then, just like everybody else does. But I think it also means that God wants to show us just how powerful his Messiah truly is. Just by being born, he threatened to bring down an entire government. He brought on the anger of a violent and corrupt king. He drew people from the east who fell before him and worshipped him. The king shows us just how glorious he is, even as a child. I think the story also means that the glorious king reverses the order of the world. Joseph and Mary, people who are most likely from very, very humble backgrounds, are lifted high and exalted because God chose them to be the Messiah's parents during his time on earth. Joseph and Mary probably didn't think that much of themselves. They were teenagers. And God chose them because of their humble circumstances, not in spite of them. The father could have sent his Messiah as the rightful son of an earthly king, but he chose not to. This is part of God's glory right here to exalt the low and humble the high. Listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 40. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. 
and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Great kings come clothed in gold and silver and precious jewels. But the greatest king was born in a manger to parents who were probably poor teenagers. You fall down in reverence for kings and governors of provinces, not for babies. And yet this is how God has chosen to reveal himself to the entire planet. As Jesus would, would go on to say in his ministry, the first will be the last, and the last will be the first. And those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The glorious king reverses the order of the world. I think also, too, this one's pretty obvious. The glorious king changes the world forever. Christmas, this thing that we celebrate, it means that God doesn't leave us without hope. That if he has promised something, he can and will deliver. And in the Old Testament, he promised a Savior who would return this world back to its original glorious form. And when the time was right, he put into action the plan that he had from the beginning of time to send his son to show us a better way, to die for our sins that we may have life abundant and eternal. And as a result, the world has never been the same. And if this Christmas season becomes just about spending time with loved ones or enjoying the beauty of the season, I'm afraid we lost sight of the Lord already. Glory was promised. It was promised in the Old Testament, a great Messiah who would save his people from their sins. And in Christmas, glory has been partially revealed. We know Jesus now. We celebrate Jesus. We love Jesus. We worship Jesus. We tell others about Jesus. And glory will be fully revealed when this entire planet will feel the weight of his love who will see his brightness and see him as he is when he comes again. When he will take all the brokenness and all the pain and all the evil that plagues this planet, he's going to restore it back to the Father. No more tears from our eyes. No more pain. No more death. No more suffering. That's the promise of Christmas. And glory has been promised years past. Glory has been revealed in Jesus Christ at Christmas time. And glory will be fully revealed on a day that only God the Father knows. But until then, until the day that Jesus comes back a second time to restore this world back to himself, we wait anxiously and expectantly. And Jesus told us that we should celebrate not just his life, but his death up until the time he comes. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up here. And we're going to celebrate communion. Jesus said that as long as you drink the cup and eat the bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I'm going to invite you in a few moments. If you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you worship Jesus, I'm going to encourage you to come up here. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and remember all that Jesus Christ has done for you, is doing in you, and will do for you. 
because he gave us this promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And like I said, his promises will always come true. Will you stand with me? And will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you do not leave us without hope. I thank you so much that you chose to send Jesus at the right time and the right place. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who hasn't felt your glory, who hasn't felt the weight of your love, I pray that you draw them to yourself, Lord. I pray that you'll forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, Lord. And I pray at this Christmas season that we'll bring you all the, or, all the honor and all the glory and all the praise that you deserve, Heavenly Father. Thank you for promising glory. Thank you for revealing the glory of your love, Heavenly Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.